0: Hello, and welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast, where we bring you the most interesting discussions around data journalism. I'm your host, Tara Kelly, and today we'll be talking with Denise Mallon, the Interim Executive Director of IRE, which stands for Investigative Reporters and Editors, a U.S. not for profit membership association for journalists. Prior to joining IRE, Denise was a newspaper journalist for more than a decade using data to shed light on local issues in government, schools, the environment, and other beats. For almost 30 years now, IRE has hosted NICAR, one of the most renowned and respected events in data journalism. But this year, for the first time ever, the event will take place online from March 3rd to the 5th, 2021. Denise talks to us about what's on the agenda and the different data training opportunities planned for this year's event. She also explains how you might be able to secure yourself a fellowship to attend NICAR for free. Let's take a listen to our conversation with Denise Mallon now. Denise Mallon, welcome to Conversations with Data. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Hi, Tara. Thanks for having me.
0: Um, So, tell us a bit about yourself and your work. You know, from what I understand, you're interim executive director at IRE NICAR. Um, For those of you who don't know, that's investigative reporters and editors. Um, You know, just tell us about your role and how it's evolved over the years and a bit about the organization.
1: Sure. Yeah. My background is in newspapers um, and, and doing data journalism there. And I joined IRE in 2013 and have had a a variety of different roles there, um, mostly on the training team. And I am currently the interim executive director while we're in a leadership transition and searching for for a new ED. Um, My regular role now for about the last year has been as the deputy executive director. Um, And in that role, I lead our training team. Um, So we put on roughly 80 to 90 events a year, um, including our conferences, workshops, in-house custom training, boot camps. And so my role is leading the training team that that puts all of those on and making sure that our curriculum and our content is strong and evolving um, and that we're keeping up with the needs of journalists um, and also making sure that, that the logistics run smoothly as well.
0: Brilliant. Um, now I know many data journalists are familiar with NICAR, you know, it's a very famous, probably the most famous event in the data journalism world, but I don't know if everyone's aware that it is IRE run. So can you just tell us about this year's event? Like, when is it? Um, and, you know, and how are you going to adapt it, given everything has kind of gone remote?
1: Sure, yeah, so NICAR, to start with, with what it stands for, um, it stands for the National Institute for Computer Assisted Reporting, which is the data journalism um, wing of IRE, if you will, um, and NICAR as a, as a conference, as an event, actually started in 1993, so we've been going for almost 30 years now bringing the data journalism community together um, and helping them train each other Um And it used to be really just a couple hundred journalists. um, And it really started growing, I say roughly about 2013 um, into several hundred, and it kept building. And so by 2018, we had over 1,200 journalists at NICAR in Chicago. So it really, really exploded over those few years and really the the trademark of NICAR we do have panels and demos and you know kind of the normal conference sessions but really the trademark of NICAR is hands-on data skills training where you can come into our computer labs our latest in-person conference had nine labs um, and you actually get to learn the skills from expert data journalists you get to learn spreadsheets SQL, programming, data viz, really all of the skills that you um, could possibly
0: need in one place. Marvelous. Now, what is on the agenda for this year? So of course we are virtual this year um, and the
1: conference is March 3rd through 5th. And we have almost 170 sessions on the agenda. And uh, that includes over 80 live sessions, which will be panels, tool demos, networking sessions, a few happy hour sessions, um, so we can have some fun as well. We'll have um, some meditation sessions and a DJ. Um, we're also going to have one of the most anticipated sessions every year is lightning talks, um, and those are five-minute talks. There are 10 of them during the session, and these are, you know, quick, quirky, just really kind of, you um, fun presentations that are submitted and then voted on by attendees. Um, So those are always uh, a lot of fun as well. And then for our data sessions, as you know, adapting into the virtual world, our uh, data sessions will be in virtual hands on labs that include um, almost 90 recorded tutorials um, in data journalism. So these are short videos, roughly 10 Minutes or so each so that you can learn at your own pace Um, and these will that we have seven labs this year, Um, these will include spreadsheets um, SQL, data wrangling so how to gather and clean data data viz. Python, R, and web scraping. So really running the gamut of all of the skills. And each lab also includes information on how to set up your home computer since everyone will be doing this from home. Um, And it includes all the data files that you'll need to follow along with the tutorials. And we did this so that everybody could really learn data skills at their own pace this year. Um, And one of the really cool things about having all of this our, tu- our tutorials and our virtual labs and all of the live sessions will be recorded and you'll have access for a year to all of those sessions. So you could really kind of come back and um, learn those skills or if you need a refresher or anything like that over the next year, they will all be available. In addition to those virtual labs, we want to make sure that people can get live help when they're learning those skills. So this year we're offering office hours, which are one-on-one 20 minute sessions with an expert in that skill. So people do need to sign up for that um, and you'll receive information if you register for the conference. So you can sign up for a live office hour and we will match you with an expert and set up a one-on-one Zoom meeting within our conference platform so that you can get help with learning spreadsheets or SQL or programming, or perhaps you have a project that you have run into challenges
0: with and you can bring that to those
1: office hours as well.
0: That sounds absolutely fantastic. And I think also one of the things we struggle with when we go to some conferences, you can't, there's not enough time to sort of take all that in. So learning in the self-paced way and over time is like, it's like more motivating in a way, I think. Uh, But we all miss the face-to-face, you know, networking of course, but you know, online happy hour works. Um, And so what about the early bird fee and do I need to be an IRE member to attend? Yes, so we do require IRE membership
1: to attend our conferences. And for those requirements, you need to be a working journalist or a freelancer, um, basically anyone who's substantially engaged in, in journalism. You can also be a journalism educator or a student. Um, so we have several tiers of membership. And ver- registration by the early bird deadline is $125. That deadline is February 10th, so coming up, uh, coming up soon. Um, and it's $175 after the early bird. That that cost is for professionals and educators, but students can register at any time for $50. So there is no early bird deadline for students.
0: Um, and so is the agenda still like being finalized and can people still submit lightning talks? So we
1: do have most of the schedule up. Now um, you can view that at ire.org slash NICAR 21. Actually all information about the conference there and we have the schedule linked. Um, so we have most of that up. We are still adding a few things, um, but but you can get a very good overview of the conference there. And the Lightning Talks submissions actually ended last week, but we are still in the period where attendees can vote for Lightning Talks. You can vote through Sunday, February 7th. We got almost 40 proposals this year from people all over the world, which is really awesome. Um, and Lightning Talks will be recorded and then um, shown live at the conference. So we can vote through February 7th on those.
0: Now, talk to us a bit about IRE, like what kind of work do you do to sort of help journalists? I know from, I think my old old professor told me you guys had like a help desk, consultancy service. Just tell us about that and how you can help journalists with their workload.
1: Right. So in addition to all of the training and workshops and conferences that we do, IRE does have a data services desk where we um, our trainers, our data services director um, work on projects for journalists, um, for working journalists. So we can help you clean data, um, analyze it, visualize it. Um, we have a number of different skills on our team that can help with all of those. We do um, giant web scraping projects, um, converting PDFs and cleaning that, uh, really running the gamut of data work, um, which is uh, really useful, especially for journalists who don't necessarily have those kind of skills in-house, um, and we do those for an hourly fee fee. Um, that's on a sliding scale, depending on the size of your organization. So if you are at a small organization, it is it is very affordable. Um, so you can check that out at our website, IRE.org. And there's a section called Hire IRE. And that's where you can find all the information about that.
0: Okay, great. And I guess I'm just curious, like, do you have, um, I mean, I'm an American based in Europe, but I'm curious, do you have lots of people from all over the world who are members? Or is it mainly just the United States?
1: Right. So we are based in, in the United States. We're based at the University of Missouri, pretty much right smack dab in the middle of the country. Um, and uh, we do have a number of international members. We have about 6,000 members overall, and usually about um, somewhere between four and 600 of those are international. So roughly like eight to 10% of our membership. Um, we are getting more and more international Uh, members now, especially with being able to do training online um, and for people to be able to attend our events internationally. We've had people attending our boot camps, our our conferences. We had a virtual IRE conference in September that attracted 3,000 people. um, And many of those were were international as well. Um, So we do have some resources uh, that include international information on our website, we have an entire resources database where members can look up tip sheets from literally decades worth of events. <laughs> um, IRE has been around since 1975, and we've been collecting resources from our conferences, our workshops, our hands-on classes. So we have tip sheets, we have audio, we have some webinars, um, we have just really uh, massive amounts of resources in in that database for journalists to look up um, and not have to reinvent the wheel when you start a project. You can find resources pretty much covering any topic, uh, resources from many different countries, how to find data internationally. Um, So those resources are really, really one of the keys to our community being able to to help each other.
0: Marvelous. Now, I know it's been a while since you've been like an editor in a newsroom per se, you know, and I, I, I was reading your CV and noticed you were a data and investigative editor before. Uh, but I just wonder from that experience, plus your time at IRE, like what advice do you have to give reporters who are wanting to move into more investigative and data-led journalism? Like how can they make that happen? And what was your experience when you were doing that? I worked at a medium-sized newspaper.
1: Uh, Most of my career was at Corpus Christi Caller Times in Texas, down on the Gulf Coast. And we did a lot of data-driven work, um, and we worked really hard to to train our entire newsroom in spreadsheets. And this is actually how I uh, became involved with IRE. Uh, My bosses there sent me to an IRE boot camp where I learned the real way to do uh, spreadsheets. I had been mostly self-taught. And I learned spreadsheets in SQL, and that took me really far in my career. Career. and now I've been teaching those boot camps for the last um, seven or eight years. And so we we meet a lot of new data journalists and the advice that we like to give them is to start small. <laughs> um, I think that it can be very overwhelming when you want to learn data journalism. You're looking at all of these different tools and oh my god, I need to like become a mega programmer and I have to learn Python and like you don't have to do all that. just like <laughs> take a breath. You know, start with what you need. And in a lot of cases, that's spreadsheets. And spreadsheets can take you really far. Um, And you can learn those in just a few hours and really build your skills. And for a lot of local reporters, that really might be all you need. So I advise to start small, start with something that really interests you in your community that is a need um, so that you can overcome any challenges and not get frustrated with them. Um, And then when you run into a challenge that you really do need to overcome. If you need to visualize data, then you learn a visualization tool. If you need to scrape a website, then you learn a little programming to be able to do that. Um, Just don't think that you have to learn it all or all of it at once. um, You know, take it easy, (laughs) go easy on yourself. Um, And I think that's the best way to to get into data journalism. The other advice I have is to read data journalism constantly. Um, You know, get to know the people who are doing this really well, you know, go to all of the trainings that you possibly can read all of you, all of it that you can and really try to absorb the knowledge from our data journalism community.
0: Now, I noticed you did a master's in data analytics, um, I believe it was at the University of Missouri. Well, what was that like and, and what did you learn from that? Any new programming skills or visualization tools?
1: Yes, definitely. So I, speaking of taking it slow in learning data journalism, there, there was about 10 years between me going to a, an IRE boot camp and learning spreadsheets in SQL, and then getting a master's to learn Python and R. And so um, during that, that master's, I really wanted to um, advance my data skills, especially to be able to help teach them, because we, we do teach those skills at IRE, and I wanted to understand how journalists use them. I wanted to be able to teach them myself and to be able to um, keep up with our curriculum that, that we are doing. And so that program taught Python, R, some SQL, little JavaScript thrown in for fun. <laughs> um, and my, my specialization was in uh, data visualization and human-centered design. And so we did a lot of um, Shiny in R, if anyone is familiar with that package, um, and building interactive visualizations, um, you know, all custom from scratch. And I learned so much in that program just about communicating with data and how to um, how to tell a story with it, um, with with all of these different tools. Um, So I feel like I really got a good overview and it helped me me understand a lot more um, what data journalists are going through in the newsroom as well. One of the most common questions we get is like, which programming language should I learn? Should I learn Python or R? And my answer is usually, well, whichever one you need, right? Like what, what are you most wanting to do? Because they do have different specializations. So I try not to take a side on that, but usually, you know, one or the other also makes more sense to people as well. Like sometimes R makes more sense in your brain and sometimes Python does. Um, And, and they can do, um, they can do a lot for you. So if, if you are interested in programming, um, we do also offer boot camps in those uh, that are for, Uh, specifically how journalists use Python and R. And all of those are online now, so you can check those out at our website too. And so if I become
0: a member, I would have access to that or those are extra? Those are for members, um, but they are for an extra fee,
1: um, depending on if you're a professional or a student. We do have a number of fellowships available for uh, registration and IRE membership. It covers both of those. Um, And this year we have really quite a few fellowships available because there's no travel money involved. And so we were able to, with the the support of our funders, we were able to convert a lot of that travel money into pure, fellowships for, for registration and memberships. Um, and we have fe- we have fellowships available for, um, for several communities, and that includes journalists and educators of color, women who are early career um, or students, and educators who teach data journalism and investigative reporting. Those are communities that we um, especially want to help through our fellowships. So the application is technically due today, February 2nd but we do have money still available. Um, and so we're going to be giving those on a rolling basis even after the deadline. So if you um, if you qualify for those fellowships, please do apply and, and try to get that in as soon as
0: possible while we still have funding for that. Okay, brilliant. Now, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the term computer assisted reporting. Like it is a very old school term and it's kind of how data journalism was born, right? But is it still relevant? Is it a tad? Outdated? What are your thoughts on that?
1: <laughs> I love this question. Uh, we have this conversation a lot, actually, <laughs> um, internally, and of course, National Institute for Computer Assisted Reporting. That name came up in the '90s, and that really was kind of the—that's what we used computers for: was data journalism at that time. <laughs> it looked very, very different in 1993 than it does today. Um, our boot camps, where you know a lot of data journalists get their start. Those were also named computer-assisted reporting boot camps. Up until just a couple of years ago, when we decided, you know, I think it's time to rename these. <laughs> so they're now data journalism boot camp. Um, but the name, you know, computer-assisted reporting still sticks around. It's it's still there, um, and I think it's maybe nostalgic um, for a lot of people. Of course, we use computers for basically all reporting now. <laughs> um, it seems like so. Um, you know, but whatever you call it, data journalism, data driven journalism, computational journalism, um, it all falls under this umbrella of what we do, um, what we do at NICAR and what we do at our boot camps. Um, and the important thing is really, you know, learning these skills and learning how to do this accurately. Um, and so <laughs> we, we will call it um, anything that people want to want to call it. Any of those terms can apply.
0: <laughs> right. And are you guys still involved with Philip Mayer, the man who kind of created this term? And is he still around? Yes, absolutely.
1: Um, and actually, we have an annual award, the Philip Meyer Award, that was just announced a couple weeks ago, um, actually, that honors the, the best in data journalism and journalism that uses social science methods, which honors the work that, that Philip Meyer did um, back in the 60s.
0: Um, And I'm just curious, from your perspective, what's like one or two of your favorite pieces of data journalism you've seen, you know, over the last year that has sort of been investigative, but also data led?
1: Well, of course, the last year has just been dominated by COVID and COVID coverage. Um, And so I think that probably the best piece over the last year is the COVID tracking projects um, that have popped up, especially here in the US and, and I'm sure in many other countries, there has been really just um, terrible data reporting on the part of of the government. Um, It's been very haphazard. There's no real rules. There's no standardization um, of data, especially in the beginning of the pandemic. And it's gotten a little better, but journalists really had to fight to get actual um, data on where clusters are happening, on demographics of of COVID uh, patients and victims. And so... There has been, of course, so many good projects to come out of it, but I feel like the the New York Times and the Atlantic COVID tracking projects have been just an incredible public service over the last year uh, because they are collecting data and standardizing it and making it available to the public and to journalists.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, I noticed that Biden, you know, he's introduced a new data-driven response to COVID-19 Um, What do you think about that? Is that going to make lives easier for journalists or have they already done the hard work to sort of fight for that?
1: Well, yeah, really to be determined. um, (laughs) I would hope that it does make the data more transparent, more easily accessible and more standardized. Um, Most of all, that has been a a big issue. There have been already a couple promising signs from this administration. Um, There are... um, The the federal government puts out state-level COVID reports every week, and the Trump administration did not release those publicly, although the Center for Public Integrity, which is a a nonprofit uh, journalism organization in D.C., every week during the pandemic fought to get those and released them publicly. (laughs) So journalists were really kind of doing the work of the government over the last year. Um, And a few days ago, the Biden administration announced that they will be releasing those reports, which which is a great sign. Um, So we hope that that trend continues and that this executive order also helps that. Um, Although I'm sure journalists are definitely standing ready to hold this administration accountable um, just as much as they did the last one.
0: Mm, Absolutely. Um, And I'm just curious, you know, given how difficult 2020 was with the pandemic, did you see more of a demand for data journalism training um, from your members or from, or did you see a spike in membership of people coming to you trying to have this kind of training?
1: Yes, absolutely. Previously, before the pandemic, we did all of our data training in person, Um, Because that is really the best way when you have a trainer there who can look over your shoulder and help you with questions and and all of that. But of course, during the pandemic, we have now adapted all of our data training um, and we now do all of our boot camps online. And so we have seen really, really great interest in that. Um, And we have done what we call mini boot camps. They are two day really kind of deep dives into one particular skill spreadsheets, SQL, Dataviz, Python, R. Um, And those have been extremely popular. Most of those have sold out. And then we also have our regular bootcamp that we had always done in person that is four and a half days, spreadsheets and SQL. Um, And we have been doing that um, over the last several months as well and completely selling out. And, you know, obviously the, the pandemic has been very difficult, but one of the silver linings of it is that this training has made data training so much more accessible for our members. And so we've heard a lot from from students or from international journalists who could never afford to travel here for for any kind of data training in person. And they are able to attend these online, um, sometimes sometimes even in the middle of the night in their time zone, um, which is really dedication. And so we have really learned that, you know, even after the pandemic, when it's safe to go back in person, we really want to still do these data trainings online because it is accessible to so many more people.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And finally, I'm just curious, like what are the future trends you see for journalism training and education in the future? Like any specific topics that come to mind?
1: Yes, one of the um, biggest issues that we see coming up now, and that we're really um, kind of adapting our training towards, is helping journalists understand data ethics, um, and especially as it relates to covering underserved communities. So this is a um, you know diversity and inclusion issue that we are getting questions from a lot of newsrooms now that have not previously been trained in this, um, and have not um, really previously considered this as part of their journalism. So we're building that into a lot of our training now. Um, and, and as it relates to data, actually one of the, the sessions that I'm most excited about coming up at NICAR is a session, especially for international journalists, and it's called Decolonizing Data Journalism. And it's it's led by Eva Constantaris, who many of your listeners are probably familiar with um, at Internews. And it's about making sure that your communities that you cover are actually represented in data, because the the governments and the people who control data don't necessarily have the right methodologies or the right um, ethics sometimes um, when collecting data. So
0: it's really about making sure that that communities are represented. Well, thank you so much, Denise, for joining us today on Conversations with Data. That was really uh, insightful. Thanks so much for having me, Darren. A big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today. Want to hear more interesting discussions on data journalism? You can subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. I've been your host, Tara Kelly, and that's all for now. See you next time.